Lord Jesus, you have done a, a good thing, a great thing in calling Luke Bobo to yourself and bringing him uh, to faith in you. And you have given a great gift to your church uh, through Luke uh, in, in this man who refuses to uh, accept the easy answer but wants to dig deeper into the Scriptures and find solid truth that we can stand on. We thank you for his heart, and we pray that we would have similar hearts this morning, that we would be ready to hear what it is that your Holy Spirit will teach us uh, from the Scriptures, from Genesis, from elsewhere in the Bible, about what it means to be created in your image and what it means to treat others as those who have been created in your image. Thank you for giving Luke the, uh, the strength and the wisdom to preach this sermon. Would you do the same now for us as we hear? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, Billy, and all the people um, literally behind the scenes, and thank you in town as well. And thanks to you, Jimmy uh, Agin, for trusting Thurman and Stephen and I. Um, you've given us permission, as it were, to mess up the house. And so that leaves the cleaning to you, my dear brother. I like preaching topical sermons uh, like this because it gives me the opportunity to show believers how the Bible is a coherent story. This gives me the opportunity to show how Scripture illustrates or interprets Scripture. The title of this sermon is Becoming One, uh, Part One. Becoming One, Part One. Of course, if you have your Bibles, turn to Philemon. You can find Philemon between Titus and Hebrews. So turn to Philemon. I'll give you a few moments to find that book or that letter. And then I want you to place your finger in Philemon and turn to Genesis 1, 26 through 27. Genesis 1, 26 through 27. Now I'm going to read that from the Christian Standard Bibles, the CSB. So it may sound a bit different from your version. Again, Genesis 1, 26 through 27, your fingers still should be in Philemon. So Genesis 1, 26 through 27, we find these words. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. They will rule the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them, male and female. The word becoming is a popular word these days. Just enter the word becoming in your browser in Amazon or the search bar, and you would be treated to four pages of books with the word becoming in the title. When I did that, the book that came up was Michelle Obama's book, Becoming. Becoming, the word, should be a popular word to us as well as Christians. James K.A. Smith, in his very convicting book, You Are What You Love, says this. The first question in the morning, once your feet hit the ground and before or after you've had your first cup of coffee, the first question is not, what should I do today? Rather, the first question is, who am I becoming today? 
who am I becoming today? This is a ontological question, a question of being. So in town, I need to ask you, who are you becoming today? I want to suggest to all of us to strive with the ready and capable help of the Holy Spirit to become one who dignifies the other. Let me repeat that. I want to suggest to all of us to strive in partnership with the ready and capable help of the Holy Spirit to become one who dignifies others. Jesus and Paul were masters at dignifying others. Why would they go to such much so why would they go to much trouble dignifying the undignified? Let me repeat that. Why would they go to so much trouble dignifying the undignified? Because they knew Genesis 1, 26 through 27, our pre-fall condition. So what does Genesis 1, 26 through 27 say again? Then God said, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. They will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. That is how it reads again. So what are the implications or takeaways of every person being made in God's image? That's a great question. First notice that animals are not made in God's image. That means that human beings are not to be treated like animals, nor are animals to be treated like human beings. We see that in Genesis 1, verses 24 and 25, and also in verse 26, we were created to rule over animals. Yes, former Atlanta, yes, former Atlanta Falcons quarterback Michael Vick should have served time for his participation in dogfighting. That's that's unquestioned. That's absolutely true. However, my point, sometimes our pets are treated better than human persons, male and female who are created in God's image. And that reminds me of a story when I went to Kentucky years ago. I remember sitting next to a gentleman and he said to me, me and two of the partners are going to buy a horse, a racing horse. My portion and their portions are $125 million. Each of them contributed $125 million to buy a racing horse. I later discovered that the lodging conditions of these horses, their homes were far better than those who actually took care of the horses. That's a good example of animals being treated better than human beings. Second, to be made in God's image means that all persons, regardless of their musical taste, dress, race, denominational affiliation, political party affiliation, ethnicity, social class, ability or disability, gender, sexual orientation, country of origin, home address, age, or educational level, are worthy of dignity and respect. No, we cannot agree with Earl Woods, the father of Tiger Woods, who said, love is given, respect and dignity are earned. True, love is given, but that last part, respect and dignity are earned, is so wrong. That is bad theology. Because of father, Father's 
Father Wood's bad theology, I believe that is why he cheated on Tiger's mom, not once, not twice, but multiple times. Maybe that's why Tiger had his breakdown and cheated on his former wife. Here's the bottom line. Living by bad theology leads to bad consequences. Living by bad theology leads to bad consequences. When was the last time you in town evaluated your theology? Better, when was the last time you allowed an objective person to evaluate your theology? Speaking of sound theology, maybe that's why my dear friend, Professor Jaron Bars, another Covenant Theological Seminary professor, started here in Genesis 1, 26 through 27 in our apologetics class. We did not start with how to develop a persuasive argument to crush our opponent. Rather, we started with this principle. Treat people with dignity and respect. We started with Genesis 1, 26 through 27. Psalm 8 is like a commentary on this passage. There in verse 5, we find these words. You made him, namely mankind, little less than God, and crowned him with glory and honor. My colleague and soul brother, who teaches at Wheaton College, Dr. Vincent Baycoat, states based on this verse that all persons, all persons are crowned with royal dignity. Because every person is made in God's image, no race is ontologically superior to another. No race is ontologically inferior to the next. We are all persons crowned with royal dignity. We are all persons crowned with royal dignity. But wait a minute, Reverend Bobo. What about after the fall of man? Yes, men are still sinful. They're knuckleheads. I'm the first class knucklehead. Men are honorary, but they're still made in God's image. That's why one of your own, Dr. Francis Schaefer, said that after the fall of man, that every person is glorious ruins. I like to say it this way. Every person is beautifully bane or a saintly sinner. Or if you prefer, every person is like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. or Mrs. Hyde. Sadly, some of your own ancestors spread the fake news that based on Genesis 9 and Noah's encounter with his son Ham, that our skin color, my skin color is a curse. And we are to be treated as those who are ontologically inferior. You hear this brief reference to the curse of Ham in the film, The Help. You hear this brief reference to the curse of Ham in the film, The Help, but you must listen very carefully. If we, beloved, if we, brothers and sisters, if we, members of in town, can just get this vital Christian doctrine right, that every person bears the likeness of God and live out this vital doctrine, we would be further down the road, as it were. At the moment, many of you are stuck on the game of Monopoly Go Square. If white Christian folks who own slaves in this country really understood this passage and its implications, they would not have tolerated or participated in U.S. slavery. White Christians would have fought 
tooth, limb, and nail to abolish slavery much sooner. How can a Christian allow a fellow person made in God's image to be treated as an animal, as less than human, as an object, as a fundamental tool, writes Willie James Jennings in his book, The Christian Imagination, Theology and the Origins of Race. So what does this have to do with Philemon, you're asking? I'm getting there. Consider these words in Revelation chapter 18, verses 11 through 13. Listen carefully. This is the aged Apostle John talking about the downfall of Babylon. There was an ancient city, Babylon. You're quite familiar with the Old Testament. God used the Babylonians to discipline his people over and over and over again. I don't think John is speaking of that Babylon. In fact, there's little consensus on the identity of this Babylon. However, we know this, Babylon's downfall, that great prostitute is certain. And this downfall will have major ramifications. Again, speaking of objects, listen to Revelation 18 verses 11 through 13. The merchants of the earth will weep and mourn over her, namely Babylon, because no one buys their cargo any longer. Cargo of gold, silver, jewels, and pearls, fine linen, purple, silk, and scarlet, all kinds of fragrant wood products, objects of ivory, objects of expensive wood, brass, iron, and marble, cinnamon, spice, incense, myrrh, and frankincense, wine, olive oil, fine flour and grain, cattle and sheep, horses and carriages and slaves. And slaves. And slaves, human lives. Read Revelation 18 verses 11 through 13 and see what's last in that list. Slaves, human lives. This text reminds me of those elementary school tests and the question, what in this list does not belong? Listen again, horses, carriages, and slaves, human lives. Slaves, human lives, that doesn't belong in this list. And I think John is being intentional here to list slaves. He's not being metaphorical. He lists human lives last so that we might be shocked and appalled. Jimmy and I talked about the silence of scripture regarding the approval or the disapproval of slavery in Bible days. This passage ain't silent. And I know that's poor grammar. And Mrs. Johnson, my English grammar teacher would be appalled that I said ain't, but this passage ain't silent about slavery and its disapproval of slavery. This is why we must read the story of the Bible from cover to cover consistently, repeatedly, consistently, repeatedly. This sermon is entitled Becoming One, Part One. I wonder if we have become numb to the injustices around us because injustices happen to people who are made in God's image. I wonder if we become numb to the indicatives and imperatives of scripture. The indicatives of scripture of course, tell us what God has graciously done for us in Christ. 
The imperatives are what we do out of gratitude for what God has done for us in Christ. But the indicatives and the imperatives of Scripture are quite clear. Have we become disobedient and remain stubbornly disobedient to doing the imperatives of Scripture? Rabbis, Jesus and Paul knew Genesis 1, 26 through 27. And most importantly, they knew the implications of this passage and they practiced it. Rabbis, Jesus and Paul habituated this passage. It became a virtue to treat people with dignity and respect. A virtue, of course, is a moral habit. It was their habit to treat others with dignity and respect. I believe Paul and Jesus were appalled at Old Testament slavery. They were appalled at New Testament slavery. Jesus and Paul would have been appalled by U.S. slavery. Another covenant professor, Dr. Jack Collins, was, was fond of saying, don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that Old Testament slavery is equal to New Testament slavery, is equal to U.S. slavery. What I'm saying is this, all three of these forms of slavery had this in common. They undermined the inherent dignity of human beings and persons made in God's image. Rabbis, Jesus and Paul knew Genesis 1, 26 through 27 and the implications of this passage, and they practiced it. They heard the word and they were doers of the word. And that should sound familiar to you to us because James says in James 1, 22, be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. I can show you examples of Jesus dignifying human beings. But I need to focus on Paul because this private letter is, after all, written to Philemon, his co-worker in the ministry. But one example, one example of Jesus dignifying a person. In John 4, Jesus actually dignifies an entire town, Samaria, by coming close. He could have taken other routes, but he decides to travel through Samaria. That was a dignifying act. Of course, because you know the extreme hatred that Jews and Samaritans shared toward each other. They avoided each other. In this passage, Jesus dignifies this unnamed woman at the well, apparently ostracized because she comes to the well alone. And at this very unusual hour at noontime, the hottest time of the day, Jesus dignifies her by talking to her. So why is that a big deal? Why is that a dignifying act? Because rabbis did not talk to women, especially not in public. Rabbis likely thought like Pharisees, who often taught and recited this prayer, Lord, thank you that I'm not a slave. Lord, thank you that I'm not a Gentile. And Lord, thank you that I'm not a woman. So to Paul's letter to Philemon, a wealthy slave owner, I know that Genesis 1, 26 through 27, and its implications were in Paul's head as he wrote this private letter that was meant to be read publicly in church because of the structure of this letter. One source said this, Paul's strategy in this letter follows what Greek and Roman students learn in rhetoric classes. This source goes on to say, 
This letter begins by building rapport and goodwill with the audience, namely Philemon in this case. We see that in verses, verses 4 through 10. Then Paul lays out the facts in a way that will convince the mind or intellect of Philemon. We see that in verses 11 through 19. And finally, Paul ends with an appeal to Philemon's emotions or heart in verses 20 through 21. And I would argue we see Paul's heart appealing to Philemon's heart throughout this letter. For instance, Paul says in verse 12, I am sending him, namely Onesimus, back to you. I'm sending my very own heart. Let me say it this way. Paul is not buttering up Philemon. He's not speaking words of flattery to Philemon. In other words, rather, Paul is taking a play from Jesus' playbook, which is based on Genesis 1, 26-27. That is, Paul is treating Philemon with dignity and respect, this slave owner, with dignity and respect. Why? Because Philemon is made in God's image. I submit to you that Paul is sincerely treating Philemon with dignity and respect by affirming his good work in verses 4 through 10. He treats him with dignity and respect by recognizing that Philemon has a brain. He has an intellect. He can reason. I've had the pleasure of traveling to Cape Town, South Africa, to speak and lecture in the mid-2000s. And I still remember hearing a Christian brother say this. If we tell people just to, just to believe without giving facts or reasons to believe, we're asking them to commit intellectual suicide. Paul doesn't ask Philemon to commit intellectual suicide. Paul does not tell Philemon what to do, although he could have because he's the apostle. And we see this in verse 8. Rather, Paul encourages Philemon to think over the facts. Onesimus was once useless. Now he is useful to both of us, Paul writes in verse 11. I didn't want to do anything without your consent, although Paul had that authority to do so. Rather Paul, wanted, rather, Paul wanted Philemon's good deed to be not out of obligation, but of his own free will, verse 14. Paul is recognizing that as someone made in God's image, Philemon has volitional will. He has a heart and a brain. Paul affirms Philemon. He affirms Philemon in verses 4 through 10 by sharing what he is pleased about, Paul affirms Philemon's ability to reason in verses 11 through 19. Again, we know uh, verses 11 through 19 is directed to Philemon's intellect because Paul begins verse 10 with the word appeal. Paul has just made his argument or appeal in verse 11 through 19. But there's a very fascinating verse uh, in this passage of 11, verses 11 through 19. In verse 17, Paul mentions the only imperative in the entire letter. In verse 17, Paul mentions the only imperative in the entire letter, the word welcome. He only mentions this imperative after he has treated Philemon with dignity and respect. Paul only makes this direct request of Philemon after he has treated him with dignity and respect. 
We also know that Paul has just made an argument because of the transitional word, so, in verse 17. Paul says, so, if you consider me a partner, welcome him as you would me. Again, verse 17. Paul is saying, if you consider us, you and me, Philemon, you and me, Philemon, we are covenant family members, my dear brother. That's the sense of the word partner, covenant family members. Then if you consider me a partner, a covenant family member, Philemon, welcome Onesimus as you would welcome me. Remember Father Wood's, Earl Wood's statement, love is given, respect and dignity are earned. Again, the latter part of the statement is so wrong. Paul flips this statement on his head because it is the Apostle Paul it is the Apostle Paul who's earned the right to request Philemon to welcome Onesimus as he would Paul himself. Let me just say that again. It's the Apostle Paul who has earned the right to request Philemon to welcome Onesimus as he would Paul himself. The Apostle Paul is earning favor. This, the Apostle Paul has condescended himself. The Apostle Paul is practicing humility. This word welcome means to receive one into one's home. Paul is saying not only receive Onesimus Philemon into your home, but welcome him into the household of faith. Also welcome him into the household of faith, where there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave or free, male or female, because we are all one in Christ Jesus, Galatians 3.28. But please don't miss the point. Paul did not believe that respect and dignity are earned. Rather, Rabbi Paul believed he must earn the right to speak truth to Philemon. No wonder this letter is a masterpiece of persuasion, as one writer puts it. By the way, I think this is a great letter, great letter about leadership, too. So Paul can say in Philemon verses 15 and 16, for, for perhaps this is why he was separated from you for a brief time, so that you might get him back permanently, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, as a dearly loved brother no longer as a slave but as a no longer as a slave but more than a slave as a dearly loved brother he is especially so to me paul writes but how much more to you philemon both in the flesh and in the lord jimmy has already shared that this statement no longer as a slave but more than a slave as a dearly loved brother would have totally shocked or rocked philemon's world but what is the basis of such a statement like this? The answer, the gospel dramatically, drastically transforms all our relationships. The gospel dramatically and drastically transforms all our relationships. 
We were once enemies of God. Now we are his sons and daughters. Once we were separated from each other. Now we are brought together by the cross, Ephesians 2. Once Jews and Samaritans hated each other, but the parable of the Good Samaritan teaches us to love those who hate us. Dr. Schaefer once said, the church should be like an exhibition of super, supernaturally restored relationships. The church should be like an exhibition of supernaturally restored relationships. Paul is appealing to Philemon. Once upon a time, dear brother, you were the master, lording it over your slave Onesimus. But now, dear brother, you dudes, you in... You, Philemon and Onesimus, you dudes, have been supernaturally restored. You are dear brothers in Christ. You are blood relatives out with the old, in with the new. How can Philemon continue to treat Onesimus as a slave against the backdrop of Genesis 1, 26 through 27? I'm sure Philemon is making connections. He hears Paul's words in his ears. Dear Philemon, Slavery robs someone made in God's image of his or her inherent dignity. So how can you treat Onesimus as a slave? Philemon hears Paul's words in his ears. Dear Philemon, the gospel turns our notions of relationships upside down. The gospel invites us into a diverse community of believers where there is true equity, where there is a level playing field, where there are no little people, where there are no big eyes and little use. Philemon, how can you treat, how can you continue to treat Onesimus as a slave? Jesus did not become one who dignifies others because he's God, because he's God, the God man. Jesus dignified others because that was already in his DNA. Paul, however, had to learn how to become one who dignifies others. Paul urges Philemon to dignify Onesimus. He is not a slave. He's more than that. He is our brother. He is your brother. He is made in God's image like us. God calls us to become those who dignify others. Let me make it as plain and simple as I can. If any group on the face of the earth, no, if there's any group of people in this galaxy that should be glowing examples of dignifying others, it should be Christians. Just saying hello to a female Muslim in her, her garb can dignify. Saying thank you to the cashier at your local grocery store can dignify. Being a generous tipper can dignify. Asking your waitress at your favorite restaurant her name can dignify. Asking a person about their tattoo, what does your tattoo mean? That can dignify. Referring to an elderly man as Mr. or an elderly female as Mrs. can dignify. Referring to a female in the church as sister, referring to a male in the church as brother can dignify. And that's why the black church is like the hub of dignifying. That's where we are truly called brother and sisters. That's where we, we can dress up to be dignified because in many ways we're stripped of, the, of that, that privilege, that honor in our culture. Helping those who are suffering from a dignity deficit. 
those out of work suffer from a dignity deficit. We could help them find work and thereby dignify them. Coming close to the oppressed, the down and out, coming close to those who don't look like you, socially, racially, economically, educationally, or politically can dignify. You see, our knee-jerk reaction is to look for what is ugly or broken, and we're all guilty of that. My prayer is that God would train us all to look for what is beautiful. What is beautiful about a person first? Can we look or ask God to help us to look for, for what is beautiful about that person first? Ask God to train you to look for what is beautiful about a blighted neighborhood first. Instead of pointing out what's wrong, look for what's beautiful. Seek to dignify others by calling out what is true, beautiful, and right, and lovely about the person. My earnest prayer, Lord, help your church become ones who dignify others in town. I'm going to end like I started, in town. Who are you becoming today? Become one who dignifies other. In the power of the Holy Spirit, amen.